welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. Just a quick reminder that I am still on maternity leave, hence the infrequency of episodes. I apologise for this and everything will return to normal in October. The Refugee Convention classes anyone as a refugee who fears persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion. This does not include one group of people who are frequently persecuted for who they are, namely LGBTQ people. Yet many countries do recognise sexual orientation as a ground for asylum, at least in theory. In practice, LGBTQ asylum seekers face many obstacles in trying to prove their cases. With me to discuss these issues from a political and ethical point of view is Menja Charla, Marie Curie Research Fellow at the School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies at the University of Bristol, and Kerry Woods, Lecturer in Political Theory at the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Leeds. The episode will mainly focus on the situation in Germany and in the UK. I started by asking Kerry Woods to give a brief overview of the situation of LGBTQ asylum seekers and the challenges that they face. LGBTQ people, the acronyms get complicated, right? LGBT, LGBT plus people, um, uh, you know, are facing persecution in in a lot of countries uh, worldwide. Um, that's that's not. New. I think it has been a focus of renewed attention recently. I mean, there's been the, the case of Brunei that was in the news for introducing and then suspending this incredibly harsh uh, penalty. Um, but there's there's a long history of of LGBT facing persecution because of their sexuality, because of their gender identity, um, and so there is increasing recognition that that kind of persecution can be. Um, grounds for asylum. Um, I think that's increasingly the case, uh, but I think it's also evident that the the international refugee regime wasn't designed for dealing with that uh, as a grounds of persecution, uh, grounds of asylum. Um, so, I mean, one of the struggles that uh, asylum seekers face is sort of fitting into a system that wasn't designed for them. Um, and so there is a there is a, a gap, I suppose, between how that system meets them and, and, and what their needs are. And their needs are, are diverse as well. I mean, I, I'm, great, I'm going to be talking about um, LGBTQ people as a group, but of course they're as diverse as any other group of asylum seekers and, and refugees. Um, but just to talk about a few of the issues that have been noted in the UK context at any rate, um, so there's a group called the UKLGIG, the Lesbian Gay Immigration Group, who produced uh, a series of reports um, tracking uh, the progress uh, of uh, UK policy and practice in this area um, and some of the problems that they, they, they note that there have been some, some significant improvements in recent years, but some of the problems that they um, continue to encounter uh, in people using their support services is um, a really sort of basic thing for um, LGBT people is to be able to tell their story and make their claim 
um, and they will often rely on the support of translators. Um, and translators sometimes meet their stories with hostility. They may express hostility to LGBTQ people. Um, they may use derogatory language, um, or they may simply, even in the absence of hostility, not know the appropriate language in which to express uh, particular things to do with sexuality or gender identity. So that's uh, a, a specific vulnerability. I mean, I think it can be a bit invidious to get into hierarchies of vulnerability, but that's a specific vulnerability that um, LGBTQ asylum seekers uh, might face. Another, at the other end of the process, is to do with uh, the situation that um, uh, LGBT asylum seekers uh, have faced in detention. Um, there are reports of hostility from other asylum seekers and reports of hostility from guards and have not been protected by guards. Um, outside of the asylum process itself, if people uh, are granted refugee status, um, they, they may not be able to call on support within diaspora communities in the same way or as easily um, as some other refugees might be able to. Um, and we know that um, those people who are most successful, if you like, at, at integrating tend to be those who can um, bring over their families and, and have the support of their families as part of the process of building a new life. Um, and LGBTQ uh, refugees um, face difficulty doing that because their partners uh, may not be recognised uh, in the legal process um, because a sort of standard view of these things is where you're living with your partner in your country of origin and if you're gay or you're lesbian or you're queer, you almost certainly weren't because it would have been dangerous to do that. Um, so there are all kinds of things that uh, are specific or, or can be specific to the LGBTQ experience of the asylum process um, that raise some difficulties. Um, the, the things that I've been focusing on, the research that I've been doing more specifically are, are to do with the, the process of, of telling your story to um, uh, caseworkers and, and how that process is, is met and, and responded to uh, by the UK authorities. Um, and there's been quite significant change in that, in the way that the, the authorities respond in the last few years um, that have been uh, substantial improvements, but um, there's a bit of a gap, it seems, um, between policy and practice in this. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that it comes down to in, in a lot of cases is a, 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 a judgment about whether or not a person's claim to be LGBT are credible or not. Um, and that raises the basic question of, well, how do you prove what your sexuality is? How do you prove what your gender identity is? Um, and some pretty, uh, you know, unjustifiable practices uh, to prove that sort of thing have been allowed in the past. Um, people have been submitting, um, you know, video evidence of them having sex with people um, as evidence to prove their claims, which is, is 
a very obvious intrusion of a person's privacy, a very obvious intrusion of a person's dignity. Um, even in cases where that wasn't happening, people have been subjected to very intrusive and humiliating questioning by UK government caseworkers, um, which, again, just quite obviously shouldn't be happening. Now, those sorts of practices um, have been... Um, uh, have been changed in, in policy terms, at least, uh, following a couple of landmark cases. Um, and that sort of practice is, is now formally um, uh, disallowed, overtly disallowed, in the UK government's asylum policy instructions uh, that were issued in 2015 on, on matters relating to sexual orientation and gender identity and updated in 2016. Um, so that's a definite improvement, um, but as I say, there's quite a lot of evidence of a gap between policy and practice in the implementation uh, of those guidelines. Um, and, and as I can talk about a little bit more later on, I think there are still some problems with those guidelines. And um, Ninja, is the situation in Germany uh, similar to the UK one, or are there any additional challenges that uh, um, LGBTQ uh, asylum seekers face? Um, I guess overall there's a lot of, of things that resonate with the situation of LGBTQ asylum seekers and refugees in Germany. Um, Germany has probably about 60,000 currently LGBTQI um, asylum seekers and refugees. Um, we don't really know the exact numbers because the Federal Office for Migration Refugees does actually not um, does not register these cases based on sexual orientation, but these cases are registered based on their country of origin, which basically causes a problem in terms of that we don't know who exactly is filing cases based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, the result of that is that quite a lot of um, asylum seekers, who particularly those who are very, um, uh, you know, are very uh, um, find it difficult to speak about their sexuality or gender identity, do not come forward in the first place um, and identify themselves as as queer or gay or lesbian or transgender or intersex, um, which means that a lot of asylum seekers actually fall through the cracks. Um, and do not are not able to profit from the the you know the, the laws that are in place. Um, so asylum seekers, LGBT asylum seekers in Germany tend to remain unrecognized um, in the first place, which results in them being housed with people you know together with people from their country. Um, and as Carrie has alluded, there is a lot of homophobia. Um, that exists within the refugee and asylum camps, but also outside of these camps. So LGBTQI um, asylum seekers are not only subject to homophobia within the camps, but also outside on top of racism and xenophobia more generally, um, which then results in a, in a sense of loneliness and, and very often also depression that they feel. Um, individuals in Germany a lot of them do not have access to legal support um, because they're not recognized. They don't have access to LGBT community groups. Um, some of them are located very far out in rural areas um, where they do not have access to the cities because they cannot afford to travel with the money that they receive from the states. 
Um, which means then in the context of the interview that particularly those and when we, um, um, this particularly affects women, um, seem to be less prepared for the asylum interview. Um, when we look at asylum seekers who have had that legal support, that have some sort of connection to LGBTQI organizations in Germany, um, and who've had, had the chance to prepare their asylum cases, the success rate is much higher than those who have not had the chance to do that. And lesbians, um, particularly those from sub-Saharan countries, seem to be less connected and therefore the rejection rate of um, lesbians racialized as black is about 95%, oh, wow. which is an extremely high rate. And this is compared to the general rejection rate in Germany of LGBTQ asylum seekers of 50%. Um, so there's a huge stark discrepancy and I think also speaks to what Carrie would you have mentioned that the group of LGBTQ asylum seekers is extremely diverse. Um, there are dynamics in, in place in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, but also in terms of race and class. Um, those asylum seekers who are probably most successful, to use the term, um, to gain refugee protection in Germany are mostly assigned male at birth. Um, they have come to Germany um, being very well prepared, knowing their sexual asylum stories really, really well, meaning also bringing with them documents and evidence that they can produce in the context of the asylum um, interview. Um, what, what that means ultimately is that in Germany you have to you have to bring your own evidence. It's not up to the judge or the interviewer to um, to, to look for evidence. It's up to you to contribute to the to the um, to the evidence finding. Um, and again, those who have been most successful had a lot of evidence with them. That can be video footages from Twitter or Facebook showing them partaking in. Um, LGBTQI activism in their countries of origin. Um, this could be documents from LGBTQI organizations in their countries of origin, also documenting their membership um, or from them participating at transnational, international conferences and national conferences. Um, those asylum seekers also had an access to more of a globalized rights discourse on LGBTQ identity, um, and have therefore have kind of established a certain consciousness about their, their, their rights and their legal standing um, globally and within the asylum system more particularly. So in these terms, I think the German asylum system is quite fractured along lines of gender, um, where we find women, and again, particularly women racialized as black at the very bottom of the system. Yeah, so I think I think that the thought um, numbers matter. Um, so in in the the UK government um, doesn't track um, uh, it does track the number of applicants who mention sexual orientation or gender identity in their applications, but not specific. It doesn't differentiate between those who mention it and those who uh use it as the the ground or the principal ground on which they're claiming uh asylum uh, so it doesn't differentiate between those two things um uk lgig estimates that around six percent 
of asylum applications in the UK are on the basis of sexual orientation, but it doesn't have figures um, for gender identity. Um, and if you're not being counted, then we, we can't know um, how things are going. Mm. Um, so I, I think there are reasons to think that, that um, people claiming asylum on the basis of gender identity are particularly uh, underserved at the very least. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to come back to and what you were saying there, uh, Menja was talking about the the asylum interview and people who are less networked, and this does tend to, I mean, you know more about this than I do, but your research in Germany also echoes research that's been done in Canada that, that says that, that women who are racialized as black, uh, as sub-Saharan Africans, are, are amongst the least networked people who are claiming asylum. Um, and one of the things that, that comes up in cases in the UK is people who genuinely just don't know that they could claim asylum on the grounds of their sexuality uh, or their gender identity. And so they go to um, their first interview, which is the interview at which their case is established and they present their case uh, for asylum. And then at a later date, they are advised by somebody, a support group, a lawyer, they hear about it, that they could make a case on these grounds, that on the grounds of their sexuality or their gender identity. And so they try to subsequently, in another part of the process or in an appeal, make a case on those grounds. But the fact that they didn't mention it at the first opportunity counts against their credibility within that system. Um, right. And this is something that is particularly noted in the case of lesbian women, that lesbian women uh, are in effect punished for not knowing the system better um, or for being people who have disclosed their sexuality or, or wanted to disclose their sexuality, wanted to say mm. things about their sexuality later in life who so don't have that track record. Um, so I just wanted to say, you know, that that that's uh, experience that you're identifying in Germany, I think that that resonates very much with experience that's identified elsewhere. Yeah, um, I'm gonna. Um, I'll ask you more about that research. I was just um, first. Could I just clarify that in European uh, and I guess a sort of Western context, is is it just the case at most places or everywhere that that you can, if if you can, sort of work through the system that you can get asylum on the grounds of, uh, of sexuality and, and gender identity? Well, there's still countries that wouldn't recognise that as a ground for refugee status. Um, yes. Sorry, Menja, go ahead. In the case of Europe, where you have the common European asylum system that establishes that sexual orientation and gender identity is a ground for asylum. Um, and that uh, most Europe, European countries are bound to that directive that was established in 2011. Mm. And Germany has integrated that within their asylum laws. Um, and this kind of directive also comes, as Carrie has mentioned, with a host of policy recommendations and for, for institutions, but also legal practitioners on how to actually implement these kind of this specific law where we think about it's probably easier to establish a political persecution or a persecution based on religion or ethnicity than a persecution based on sexual orientation or gender identity, um, particularly because that's nothing that is as public 
Um, mm. It's very often difficult to prove that you have been persecuted based on your sexuality or gender identity. Um, in very rare cases, we have police reports that show that you have been um, that you have been incarcerated, or police reports that show that you have actually um, experienced domestic violence or violence on the part of the community based on your sexual orientation or gender identity. These cases are extremely rare. So most of the time, unless the asylum seekers um, themselves have prepared themselves really, really well they come with no evidence whatsoever. Right. So the only thing that they have is their own story, their sexual science story, which is extremely powerful and extremely important. And in the case of Germany, everything hinges on how you present that story. Mm. And in Germany, one of the difficulties is, and this is a, is a cultural discrepancy um, between Germany and probably most other countries, um, that they want to have the story told in a very accurate and way and with, rich in detail, which means that as a person who has experienced violence because you are gay, lesbian, intersex, transgender, um, or gender non-conform, you would then have to retell that experience, which for most of them has been extremely traumatic, um, in rich detail, in order to be, be credible vis-a-vis um, -vis the assessor. And as Carrie has also mentioned, particularly those individuals who have not access to or are not plugged into a, you know, a community, people that support them, um, that rehearse that story with them and sit down with them and make sure that the story is straight, it's accurate, it has the dates in it, it's a linear story, it cannot be a story that's scattered all over the place, it has to make sense in the eye of the German institution. Um, um, there is very little chance that you will actually be granted refugee protection. And particularly, again, women are affected by the lack of support, um, the lack of training in how to tell your story, and also the lack of evidence. Mm. The women that I worked with, and I have focused particularly in the last couple of months on the asylum stories of lesbian women from Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, um, who, who most, of, most of them are located in the southern part of Germany, which is a little bit more a conservative part, um, who all have been rejected. And they have been rejected on the grounds that either the, the violence that they have endured, and this is a forced marriage, a lot of them have been married once or twice, um, a lot of them have children, most of them have been uh, victims of domestic abuse, um, most of them have been victim um, of abuse on the part of the community. Um, and I would say about 10% have been victims of trafficking. And these kind of gender-based violence has not been recognized as being directly connected to their sexual orientation and gender identity. So when it comes down to telling their story, what happens very often is then that the assessor would then say, well, would you explain in terms of the violence that you have experienced does not necessarily mean that it's because you're gay or because uh, you're a lesbian. You know, this could happen to right. any woman in the country of origin. Um, in many cases, the asylum would then be rejected on these grounds. So particularly for women, it's really difficult to, to kind of establish that the violence that they endure, which could lead in persecu to persecution, is a part is connected to their yeah. sexuality.
Kerry, um, you argued that um, that these kinds of biases that we've talked about now, the sort of gender and race biases within the asylum system, that it constitutes a kind of epistemic injustice. So would you like mm-hmm. to explain um, what you mean? Sure. I mean, so I guess all asylum seekers face what... Um, so Miranda Fricker has this book on epistemic injustice. Lots of people were writing about it before her in different ways and calling it different things, but she's a useful sort of marker. Um, so she has this idea of a credibility deficit, right? That that some people are just not recognized as credible authoritative speakers because um, they don't fit the stereotype. They don't fit our unconscious biases of who a credible authoritative speaker is. And I think that all asylum seekers face that. Certainly in Europe, all asylum seekers are um, trying to to make their voices heard and trying to make their case to an authority um, that is staffed by people who read the newspapers and who are ordinary citizens like the rest of us and who've imbibed all of the narrative about bogus asylum seekers and about the idea that, that uh, people who are... Uh, here seeking refuge or economic migrants, not uh, not genuine refugees and all of that. Um, so all asylum seekers face uh, a credibility deficit. That's true. Um, but I think what we see in the case of, of LGBTQ asylum seekers is that there are other stereotypes that sort of come together, if you like. There's a triangulation of stereotypes that, is, that has a particularly pernicious effect. Um, So there are kind of stereotypes of what it is to be LGBTQ, that if you come here and you're a refugee seeking asylum, um, then sort of axiomatic of being a gay person from sub-Saharan Africa would be that you would want to reject the culture of your country of origin, and particularly you you would want to reject the religion of your country of origin. And so one of the things that you find in in Britain in um, reasons for rejecting uh, asylum claims is that you, you find that people were found not to be credible because they didn't see a conflict between being gay and being Christian, or they didn't see a conflict between being gay and being Muslim. Um, and um, there are sort of standards, if you like, uh, you know, universalized presumed standards of what it is to be gay that um, uh, that lead to a framework in which asylum claims are judged, where it's difficult for people to articulate their own understanding of their story. That 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 Menjo was talking about the the story of what their their own experience of being LGBTQ and their own experience of persecution. Um, that, that story has to fit into um, a, a, a bureaucratic framework that just doesn't have scope and doesn't have space uh, for people to describe for themselves and explain for themselves their vision of their lives. Um, so the asylum policy instructions in the UK uh, on this ask uh, require, in fact, um, caseworkers to ask about people's experience of coming out and of realising that they were gay. Um, and it's sort of written into those instructions that the, the caseworker would expect uh, 
the experience of finding yourself to be gay to be a realization of yourself as being different to your community and being in some sense alienated from your culture and your country of origin or your community of origin. Um, so that kind of builds into the system um, a framework or a, a narrative of what it is to be LGBTQ. Um, and if you don't match that in your story, in your presentation of your persecution, then you are likely to be found not to be credible. Mm. Um, and if you take, you know, the kind of cases that, that Menja was mentioning, it's a very common thing um, for, for lesbian women in particular uh, to have been married and to have been married at a young age. Um, and it's a very common thing in, in rejection decisions for people to say, well, you were married in the past, so we doubt your claim. On that basis, Oscar Wilde, the most famous queer person in British history, is not gay enough for the UK Home Office, right? Because he was once married to someone of the opposite sex. Um, but we find those kinds of decisions um, again and again in um, in reasons for rejection. And one of the things about sort of statistics that, that um, Menja mentioned earlier, I mean, a, a more consistent predictor of whether or not um, decisions will go against the applicant in the UK cases our country of origin, um, that's the most significant factor. But even sort of accounting for that, there's a higher rate of cases being granted on appeal amongst um, LGBTQ claimants mm. than there is for the rest of the population, which suggests that the quality of decision making in the first place is, is particularly poor in the case of LGBTQ applicants. And if, as I argue, the, the API, the asylum policy instructions, are directing people towards a kind of false image uh, and, and a, a biased and stereotyped image of what it is to be gay uh, or to be LGBTQ, which I think even with the improvements that have been made is still the case, then that poor decision making is exactly what you would expect. So, <clears throat> so this is what... Um what the epistemic injustice um, constitutes that that people are basically not seen as not seen as credible because they don't fit into our the, the bureaucratic system. Yeah. So yeah. what I well what I argue in a, a paper that I have on this is the 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 credibility the wider credibility deficit that all asylum applicants face, if you like, is is something that you would expect to be reflected in decisions mm. insofar as decisions are made by people who are staffed by the general population right but the a further epistemic injustice it seems to me it isn't just reflected in the process it's produced by the process mm. to the extent that the process depends upon us having this universalizable idea or test of what it is to be lgbtq and that is based on a kind of westernized assumption of what it is to be LGBTQ um, and doesn't allow space for people to articulate their own experiences in, in terms and in, in narrative ways that don't fit into the institutionalized kind of bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic process that Menjo was talking about. Mm. I mean, you've already talked a lot about the... Um 
the issues and the injustices and biases so so you can kind of see where reforms would be needed to uh, to make the system more just. Uh, but if there's anything in particular that you think this would be easy fix or this is something that you can implement tomorrow um, to uh, to instantly improve uh, the experience for, for gay asylum seekers? Well, I mean, I don't think there's an easy fix, but there's definitely a few suggestions, I think, particularly in Germany, that would improve the access of LGBT um, individuals to refugee protection. Um, and one of them, and that's not my suggestion, that's actually someone suggested that to me who has gone through the process. Is like, you, you know, he said, I walked into the, um, into the center in the beginning, into the reception center, and realized that there's pamphlets for all different kinds of asylum seekers, the pregnant woman, the minor who travels on his own, for families. Um, but there's no, none of these pamphlets for LGBT right. Um, asylum seeker. So he said, just if we had something that we could take without really already having to out ourselves, but something that we could take, and then there is this information in their phone number or, you know, legal advice or, you know, what are the steps to take in order to make your claim. And I think that would, at least that's what he told me, that would have made him feel much more welcome as an LGBT person within the system. That seems like a fairly easy thing to do. <laughs> It seems like yeah. <laughs> a thing to do. Another thing is, again, like in the UK, that seems to be the case, but in Germany, you're not registered based on that claim. Um, and if you could just tick a box so people know that you mm. are LGBT and, and maybe, you know, there is a way that you're not housed in a rural area where you have no access to the LGBT community in Germany or to LGBT services that could support you in making your claim um, these are the things that asylum seekers said would have really helped them if that would be the case. Um, and also help them not to feel so isolated. I think that yeah. the, the feeling um, of isolation is, is very strong um, amongst all LGBT asylum seekers. And particularly in Germany, there's very little opportunities for them to be housed within the LGBT community. There's very little housing dedicated. Um, to LGBT asylum seekers. So most of them do live with the general population. Um, the general the, asylum uh, population. Asylum population, yeah. exactly. Mm. And the general German population, mm. particularly if they're housed in a little town in Germany, that probably as such is already homophobic <laughs> in general. Um, the other thing I would mention mm. is the um, access to healthcare for right. LGBT asylum seekers. Um, and lastly, and this brings us back a little bit to the beginning of what Carrie has mentioned um, in terms of the translators who, mm. who some of them are, are very homophobic because they also come from, not just because, but they come from the same communities, um, are not particularly trained in LGBT issues and topics. That also goes for the asylum assessors in Germany, who are most of them are not trained. We have 100 trained assessors for 60,000 LGBT asylum seekers and refugees, and that's just not enough. So the chances that you are interviewed by someone who has very little knowledge about LGBT issues are very, very high. The same goes for the judges um, who also are not trained in these issues. Um, Germany has had a huge backlog in cases since 2015. Um, which means that a lot of the assessors, as well as judges, are actually not even trained in asylum law itself. So they come from very different areas. And I think that there is a need to train, to systematically train 
personnel that are involved in the asylum process right from the beginning. Um, and on the other hand, to provide that legal support and social and, and uh, medical support to LGBT asylum seekers. Um, I, I, yeah, I think I, I would, you know, all of that is um, consistent with everything that um, um, that I would think of. But a, a couple of things that that I would add or or just uh, reiterate. Um, so although I've been saying that there, as I say in the paper, that there are some things they think are specific to LGBT uh, asylum applicants. Um, I think the things that would help are also things that would help more generally, that would help all, all applicants. Um, one of the things that's, um, sorry, one of the things that's uh, uh, a problem within the UK system is that there's a very high turnover of staff uh, amongst right. the caseworkers. So there's poor training uh, and poor support for the staff. Um, so the, the, the asylum policy instructions uh, on sexuality and gender uh, identity um, although I suggest that there are some problems with them, um, they are not—they're not as bad as they were, and they're better than they are in, in some other countries. Um, but they're not uh, as well implemented as they could be because the the training to support the implementation isn't adequate. Um, and I, 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 on the and a different side of the problem. Um, all asylum applicants in the UK are, are on uh, financial support um, provided by the UK government that is so meagre. Um, uh, it, it is, you know, really inadequate. Um, and one of the reasons that's, I mean, that's terrible for everybody, but one of the reasons that that's particularly terrible for, for some LGBTQ applicants is, for example, a, a case that, that I was that I'm familiar with of a trans man who was who couldn't convince um, the, the caseworkers that, that he was trans. And he's, you know, well, how, how do I prove this? How do I do this? And the lengths that he went to were to um, deprive himself of. Um, anything but the barest minimum of food. He, he just had a, a one serving of rice a day um, for enough time to save up some money to buy hormones online to inject himself to prove that he was committed to transitioning and thereby prove that he was trans. Um, and that's the lengths that people have to go to if uh, within the system um, and that's that's partly a sort of triangulation again of, of the prejudices and stereotypes within the system, the lack of understanding and training within the system, and the poverty uh, that comes with being within the asylum process as an applicant. Um, so I think things that would make a significant difference um, for LGBTQ applicants are, are also things that would make a significant difference for asylum applicants in general. To find out more, you can find links to Menja Charlotte and uh, Kerry Woods in the episode description. You can also follow Talk Immigration on Twitter at TalkingMig. That was all for this time. Thanks very much for listening.